continue in the series um, Summit Walk and uh, excited just for the opportunity that God has as we walk through uh, the first couple of verses or the first 13 verses of, of James chapter 2. Um, so practical, so down to earth, and, uh, but because it's so practical and down to earth, we think, oh, okay, that's, yeah, I believe that, but let's really focus in this morning what God would have to say to us. I think many of us have been uh, watching the NFL Finals, and maybe some of you are sitting here today going, I'm not sure what I'm going to do this afternoon. There's no football on. Well, maybe not. You know, some of us, I guess, with more excitement than others, especially if you're a San Francisco 49ers, Kansas City fan, you're excited. If you're a Green Bay Packers fan, I know we have a lot of you in here, not so much. That's because the 49ers beat the, the Green Bay Packers. You know what, no matter, no matter what city you travel to, it seems that people are going to have their favorite football teams, sports teams. And maybe it's because you are from that town. Maybe that's the reason why they're your favorite. Or, or someone else on, on that team is from where you lived at one point in time. Um, but many people's favorite teams, I've discovered, are often not based upon them being that good. I mean, ask any Cubs fan or Bears fan, right? You know, favorites are often based upon external factors, like the location, the mascot, the team colors, um, something like that. Now, there's nothing wrong with, with having favorite sports teams. In fact, people have a lot of those favorites. We have favorite foods, we have favorite activities, we have favorite TV shows and favorite movies. We even have favorite people that we like to hang around with. And you know, in the world, people are often treated differently based upon many of those external factors. I mean, if you're that football fan and you're wearing a Green Bay Packers jersey, I mean, you just kind of, there's a camaraderie there. There's an immediate association and like for each other. Um, maybe not so much between a, a Bears and a Packers fan or whatever that might be. But you know, it doesn't matter. And the reality is, in the world, people have those favorites that are based upon those superficial or external factors. Um, and they're driven by those things. But the reality is, friends, we need to be very aware that we don't allow those kinds of superficial um, preferences go deeper to when we're talking about people themselves. And when a decision about how we treat or act towards a person is based upon some external or other superficial things, and we begin to show partiality because of some external measurement we have, it is often becomes hurtful to the individual and shows a deep insensitivity in our part towards them. And while this does go on in the world today, very often it, it doesn't make it right. And it is something that we who name the name of Jesus Christ have an opportunity to show the world a unique kind of love, no matter what the differences are, no matter what the color of a person's skin, no matter what the education, no matter what clothes they wear. We have an opportunity to show the love of Jesus Christ to a world that is in desperate need of understanding what his love is, is like. And so this morning, as we continue in the series uh, Summit Walk in James chapter 2, with a message entitled, Stepping Through Partiality. That's what it's all about this morning. Well, as we work through these 13 verses of James chapter 2, we're going to see that what a real faith, a genuine faith in Jesus Christ, a changed heart, 
that is worshiping Jesus Christ with genuineness and sincerity and that our worship is on fire for him that how our lives should be different and not act as the world does in relationship to showing favoritism or preferences. And so turn with me to James chapter 2 in your Bibles if you have them. And what I love is the practicality of of James. James closed out chapter 1 with a discussion of religion that is, that is pure and undefiled. And we saw from the passage last week that being a Christian is not conforming, it is not muscling our outward behavior to some religious pattern, but a heart that has been changed first by God's transforming power and then it responds as Jesus would to all of life's situations and circumstances, but especially as we deal with people. And as we cross paths with people each and every day. And that leads us to the first point. Treat all with the same respect and love that God has poured out on you. Treat all with the same respect and love that God poured out upon you. James writes in chapter 2 verse 1. He begins and he says, my brothers. He's talking to the saved. To those born again. To those who have surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. He says, my brothers, show no partiality. He doesn't mince words. He just kind of gets right to it. Show no partiality, he says here. He says, no special treatment that, that is based upon some superficial or external measurement that you might think is, is important to you. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. As you hold the faith, as you embrace the reality that you are saved, that you're born again, that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. So, James begins by sounding a warning and addressing a problem that was going on in the early church. He writes to the diaspora, the 12 tribes located all over. And he's writing to the early church and what he discovered was that people were playing favorites in the church. And people were showing partiality in regards to, to who was coming into the church and how they were being treated when they walked through the doors. The word translated partiality, I love this, comes from these two Greek words, to receive and to face. To receive and face. And it means to receive someone by face value or appearance. It's to evaluate a, a person on the basis of, of just simply surface characteristics. It has the idea of judging others solely, exclusively, on external face value, such as the clothes they're wearing, the homes that they may own, the cars they may drive, the position that they might have, their skin color, their political bias or preferences. James warns us, as he warned the early church, don't just look at a person's face or outward appearance. Don't act in a biased, predisposed way because of the externals, because you may find out you are wrong about the person. So my question here is, why is James so direct with this command? Well, I think, first of all, it was a problem in the early church. It's still a problem today in, in some churches as well. But I believe he, 
He addresses the issue in such a direct way because of two very important reasons. The first reason is because impartiality, impartiality is an attribute of God. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 17, you might want to write that verse down, it says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality. Does not show partiality. Doesn't show favoritism. And then in Acts chapter 10, verse 34, again, we have a very similar statement. As, as Dr. Luke writes the book of Acts, he says, God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. The second reason that James was so direct with his command is because impartiality, impartiality, was an attitude of Jesus. And that's what he practiced. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 16, you had some of the religious leaders who had observed Jesus, who had heard Jesus and his teaching. They come to him and they said, Teacher, I think this is profound. We know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care. I love this. You do not care about anyone's opinions. That's great. For you are not swayed by appearances. I love that. You are not swayed by appearances and truly you teach the way of God. You show no partiality and teach rightly. So why was James so direct with this command? Well, because it's, the, it's an attribute of God and the attitude of Jesus was not to make judgments or conclusions based upon externals. Don't just look at a person's face or outward appearance. Don't act in a biased, predisposed way because of the externals because our Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord of glory, has poured out his grace and mercy upon you and upon me without partiality, without looking at you and going, well, yeah, maybe not, maybe so, okay, yes. His grace has been poured out upon us without partiality. So show the same respect, show the same love to others in the same way that God has poured out on you and me with his grace and mercy. James says, as you hold the faith, as you hold this precious gift that God has given to you and to me, this faith of of undeserved mercy and grace that God has given to us, trusting personally in Jesus Christ, who is our Lord of glory. You see, James was trying to point out to the Christians in his day that our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is tied to his mission. I guess that could be considered a third reason. Jesus Christ was in this glorious state of godness in heaven. But he willingly humbled himself. He left heaven to identify with whom? With the poor, the exploited, the different, the sinful, the down and out, to whom he promised the kingdom. You see, Jesus' mission was announced at the very beginning of his ministry. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, we read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. These are the words of Jesus. 
Because he has anointed me to preach the good news. To whom? To the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed. You see, friends, partiality based on physical appearance, based upon social status, based upon one's race, is totally inconsistent with the things of God. And it's incompatible, incompatible with someone who claims to have faith in the one who came to break down all of those barriers of nationality, race, sexism, and religion. You see, James, with this clarion call to begin with in verse 1, moves now from stating that foundational principle, which is show no partiality, to an illustration, to give us an example of of what he just said. Notice verses 2, 3, and 4. James writes there, he says, here's the example, the illustration. For if a man wearing a gold ring in fine clothes comes in to your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. And so you get the picture, somebody fine dressed, somebody not quite fine dressed. And he says, if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, hey, just stand over there. Or, you know, maybe sit down here at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and you have become judges with evil thoughts, evil motives, evil intentions? You see, James offers this very graphic and convincing illustration of the problem. He says, suppose, for example... Two men come into a Christian gathering of some sort, and James says, uh, into an assembly, which literally was translated the synagogue, and, and, and that's where the Christians met for a period of time. But we could say, if suppose you had two men who come into a gathering, into a worship service, and someone is lavishly dressed, elegant clothes, fine jewelry. They have the bling to end all bling. They smell great. And then the other guy comes in, poorly dressed, shabby clothes, grungy, worn out, maybe even smells a little bit. Probably maybe even a beggar. You see, James is establishing this, these two extreme contrasts in clothing. But we could use any other external distinguishing elements or features. They were using clothing as an outward appearance to determine personal worth, value, or importance in in this assembly that that James is making up. And and, and so you have, is an usher. And I don't know if you've ever seen this happen with any of our ushers. Thank you for being very gracious, folks. But it says in verse 3, He pays attention to the one. He notices the one who is well-dressed, who is finely dressed, or literally, he is looking with favor upon the one. And the contrast is disfavor on the other. The rich is quickly put into a situation of prominence. Sees the rich man, offers the rich man this choice seat in the assembly. 
And you know what? In the synagogues, and James is making reference to that, there were choice seats for some in the synagogue. In the Jewish culture, where you sit was a big deal. But Jesus had some incredibly insightful words to those who might be seeking those seats of position, prominence, and honor in Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. I'm not going to read that. But Jesus concludes, for those that would seek honor and prestige in an assembly, for those who are predisposed to wanting to share their accomplishments and all of their religious victories, Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. I mean, we around here at some point have, have, have taken, things, taken these words very seriously and have always tried to make everything we do about the person of Jesus Christ. Not wanting to make it about a name, a personality, but make it about the person of Jesus Christ. And we're always a bit suspicious or on guard when we have folks who might come in and they immediately begin to share with us all of their, their religious accomplishments, all of the things that they have done and accomplished within evangelical world. And we're always a bit, as I said, cautious. But what we love about so many people here is when you have come here, you have come in humbly, quietly, faithfully serving, not making it a big deal, but just doing what Jesus himself would do. And we so appreciate the heart that's associated with that. And so Jesus had some strong words. James has got some strong words as to how we treat others and how we engage with other people. Going back to the story, you have the poor man who is, who is rudely, in this illustration, and I think offensively told to stand over there. Or as another translation paraphrase this, if you must sit, sit on the floor. Wow. And I think to myself, how sad that a Christian would, would say, literally, sit at my feet. And this means that the poor man's not only treated as inferior to this rich person, but even worse, the Christian who should have welcomed him in didn't. Instead of honoring Christ, the rich man was respected while the poor man was despised. Contrary to the purpose and the mission of Jesus Christ himself. Leviticus 19 verse 15. You might want to write this verse down. I love this. It says, do not pervert justice. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality or favoritism. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism, it says, to the great. But judge your neighbor fairly, not based upon externals, not based upon what you see. The most recognizable symbol in our justice system in the world, but in our justice system today, is a blindfolded lady holding scales in her hand. And I think we have a slide of this. And she's holding the scales of justice, and she's wearing a blindfold. Unable to see anyone because of the blindfold, she's able to serve the cause of justice impartially, not based upon external appearances, not based upon what somebody might be wearing. And like God, like God, 
that lady of justice is no respecter of persons. You see, because with God, there is no partiality. There is no favoritism. And God expects us to make an unbiased, to make the unbiased judgments of others also, or we become guilty of injustice and favoritism. Partiality violates the very spirit of the gospel and the character and the mission of Jesus. James says that, that he had judged with evil thoughts. That's in this illustration that he says. With evil thoughts or, or evil motives. Motives such as catering to the rich. And as I thought about that, why? Why would this, this person here want to cater to the rich? Could it be in hopes of, of selfish gain? Thinking in his mind that, man, if I serve and if I treat you well, then you might be able to do something for me because of your wealth, because of your status. And we, we, we see that happening so much today in the world. It's, it's sickening. And you know what? That's what I loved about the pure and undefiled religion that Pastor Tim talked about last week. And what I love about pure and undefiled religion before God is to visit orphans and widows. Why? Why is that a pure and undefiled religion? As I thought about not only what Pastor Tim had to say, I, I was drawn to the reality that if you serve an orphan, if you serve a widow, what's the likelihood of them ever being able to reciprocate and pay you back for something you've done? Pretty unlikely. And so I think that helps to sort of crystallize what the motives might be behind what the illustration that James gives here of the, of the one who was, what was paying so much attention to, to the rich and so little attention to the poor because he possibly figured the poor would really never be able to do anything for me and so therefore I'm going to sort of cater to the rich, to the well-off in this situation. You see, partiality, as I said, violates the very spirit of the gospel and the character and the mission of Jesus, James says they had judged with evil thoughts, evil motives, evil intentions. Well, this takes us to the second point. Long to be rich in faith. Long to be rich in faith. Not in wallet. Not in wallet. I love here that James goes on calling us to be rich in faith. Not rich in the wallet, so to speak, because there is a kingdom inheritance promised to all of those who love him. Notice verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, again, talking to the saved. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world? See the contrast? Poor in the world to be rich in faith, but also heirs of the kingdom. Heirs of the kingdom. When you're an heir... To something you don't have it in the moment it comes after the person passes away as it might be written in their will and so what James is saying here the reality is friends um, long to be rich in your faith don't worry about your position in this life because there is an inheritance waiting for you an incredible inheritance you see throughout scripture God has taken the side of the poor the underprivileged the different and the oppressed Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 18 and 19. I read to you earlier verse 17 out of Deuteronomy 10. 
But he goes on to say there, and I love this, that he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him goods and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. He's writing here to the nation of Israel. You see, I love the fact that God wasn't forced to settle for the poor as a group of people. But he deliberately chose them. They are special objects of his love. Jesus Christ was rich, but the Lord of glory became poor. Why? For your sake and for my sake. He came down to earth, took our alien nature, we could say, our sin, and our curse upon himself, and he extended grace to each one of us by choosing us, not based upon some external appearance, some educational certificate, the color of your skin. You see, all who are in Christ are there as a result of God's loving choice. We should be incredibly thankful. God doesn't just choose all the tall, the dark, and the handsome. I'm not sure I'd be in that category. He also chooses the short, the shot, the shapeless, the stubby, the skinny, the not-so-skinny. He calls each one of us into fellowship with him. And he invests us with a, with a heavenly value and a heavenly worth. Not a worldly worth. He calls us to be rich in faith because we are joint heirs with Christ in his kingdom. I love the story that you're probably very familiar with yourself of Samuel, who was one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. And when King Saul had turned away from God, turned away from God's ways and God's purposes, God had called to Samuel and had Samuel go and anoint one of Jesse's sons to be the next king of Israel. Samuel shows up and Jesse brings out his boys. Samuel sees the one son, Eliab. He's big, he's strong. He's strapping, good-looking. And we have recorded for us in 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 and 7, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before you. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks where? At the heart. So then all the sons pass in front of Samuel, and one by one, God says to Samuel, nope, 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 not that one. And Samuel goes, is this all the sons? And they go, no. Jesse goes, there's one other son, he's out in the fields. And so they pull little David in from the fields in order to anoint him as king. A young man who was rich in faith and had a heart for God. You see, I believe that God longs for us to see people even better than Samuel did. To see them as God sees them. To be able to cut through the externals to understand who they really and genuinely are. Because, you know, the reality here, friends, is God has said this of all of us in 1 Corinthians 1. 
Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many of you were were of noble birth. But God chose these, the foolish things of the world, to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Be thankful. Be thankful that God poured out his grace and mercy not only on you and that we should be rich in faith but share that with those in need of his grace and mercy as well. Whether rich or poor. Look at verses 6 and 7. James continues to write, he says, but you have dishonored the poor man. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name of which you were called? See, James is saying here, friends, to extend preferential treatment to the rich was, it was a disgrace to the profession of Christianity and to really Jesus Christ himself. It was also something stupid when you stop to think about it. Because it was the rich as a class who in James' day were often the exploiters of the poor and built their wealth on the backs of the poor and the disadvantaged, the vulnerable, and the unfortunate. They were the ones who also often spoke with with great contempt for Christ himself and blasphemed the name of, of God. And so what James is encouraging us to be here is to be rich in faith because our inheritance is yet to come. Then thirdly, thirdly, live thankfully. Live thankfully for mercy and share mercy with others. Live thankfully. One of the most fundamental callings of Scripture that is placed upon each one of us is love for one another without bias and without prejudice. I mean, centuries before Moses had said these things in Leviticus 19, 18, he said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That was a law. That was a law then. That was a law reaffirmed in Matthew twenty two thirty nine, 39. And it is still true for us today. Notice verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, he says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. You are doing well. You see, our actions, our attitudes toward others should be driven by the way in which we would want to be treated and thought of. Does that make sense? I mean, shouldn't all of our actions and attitudes toward others be driven by the way in which we want ourselves to be treated? The way in which we want others to be thinking of us? Do we want to be treated with patience, with understanding, with acceptance and kindness, compassion, fairness, thought of with respect and love? 
I think, yeah. Then we have the opportunity, the obligation to give to others what we long for ourselves and what we deserve. This royal law that James talks about, it's expressed because it's the will of the king. It reveals what he is and what he expects from those who follow him. The command to love your neighbor as yourself is central to this, loyal, uh, to this royal law. And we transgress that law when we show partiality. And as James says in verse 9, look at there. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Showing partiality or favoritism is not just social rudeness, as some might say, or impoliteness. It's sin. We are obligated to treat all people with love, with respect, with dignity, because they are a creation of our amazing God, created in his image. We certainly are not to hold, withhold our love to the poor, nor are we to ignore or withhold our love to the rich. It goes both ways because of what they might have or how they may dress. The principle is the same for both the rich and the poor. Notice verse 10. Verse 10. James writes, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable to all of it. And that's what James was, was saying here. He said this principle of favoritism, that's the, that's the point. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, that one point he was making reference to is, is showing favoritism, showing partiality. And you might think that's not that big of a deal, but he says you have then become accountable for all of the law, for all of it. The law of love is indispensable from all other laws. We cannot pick and choose between the commandments that God's given to us. Because the law is, is as someone has said, and I love this, the law is more like a, a pane of glass than it is a pile of stones. You can take one stone from a pile and the pile still remains. But if you throw a brick through a window, the whole window is shattered. James, I think, anticipates what some might be thinking here in this discussion as he's writing to these churches, to these Christians, thinking that, you know what, hey, you know, sure, our love may have, a few, have some limitations. You know, we may have shown some partiality or, or, or some favoritism to, to some and not to others or prejudice to some and now and then, but at least we're not murderers, adulterers. I think that's what James is anticipating and thinking here. And so James answers that thought in the next verse with this exaggerated example to, to prove his point. Notice verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. For if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. And the point James is making here is that the law is a unit. It stands as a whole like the pane of glass. And to break the one law is to become guilty of the entire law. You see, Jewish thought in James' day would have disagreed with that um, because they have written things and they have said, well, some laws were light, 
and some laws were heavy. And I think we know what they mean there. Meaning that breaking some laws were not as serious as breaking others. I mean, to show a little bit of favoritism to one person and maybe ignore another person, that's not as bad as murder or adultery. Come on. And if that happened to, to you know, if, to show some partiality or favoritism, it's only breaking one of those light, lesser laws, which certainly is not as bad as committing adultery or murder. However, we need to understand that God's law was never written with heavy or light elements to it or intentions so that obedience to some outweighed obedience to others. Does that make sense? You know, the severity of, of, of breaking certain laws comes with immediate consequences and severe consequences. But, you know, here in, in our reality, in, in our world, and in, in our government, there are some laws that, yeah, you break, you know, you, you, you speed and, you know, you get stopped and, yeah, you get a ticket. The consequences are maybe a couple hundred bucks. But murder? Yeah. Prison? Who knows what else? And see, the reality is, with God's laws, none of them outweighs another. They're all equal. But let me also say that from our perspective, and it's only from our human fallen perspective, there does seem to be degrees of sin. And I say that because we believe that the effects of some sins seem much more destructive and horrible than other sins. And because we don't see the immediate effects on our lives, we wrongly believe, wrongly believe, well, that sin isn't that bad or that big of a deal because nothing really happened. What each one of us must remember here is not what is my perspective, but what is God's perspective on sin. We've all broken the law in many ways and in many degrees. And as I was thinking about this, it's kind of like poison. You could take a little tiny bit of poison, and again, I'm just talking in very broad generalities here. You know, a little bit of, say, arsenic. Not going to do you much harm. At least that's what I've heard or read. But if you take a lot of arsenic, if you take more and more and more and more, eventually the accumulating effect of, 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 that, of that poison, of that arsenic, is going to cause devastating effects. But we might think, hey, you know, it's just a little bit. It's not that big of a deal. Let's never think of sin in, as light sin because the accumulating effect of sin can be devastating. You know, we make a horrible mistake when we get caught up in discussing possible degrees of sin. And while it is true that some sins have different earthly consequences compared to some other sins, when we have sinned at all, no matter how big or how small, how light or how, hev how heavy we think it is, it is the same as breaking the entire law in God's eyes. And that is why we need a Savior. We need Jesus. And we need His righteousness. James goes on to say, verses 12 and 13, he says there, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. You know, fortunately for us, mercy is very near to the heart of God. 
And we ought to all be thankful for that because we are all in constant need of God's mercy. And I love the fact that James shows us on what terms we may have it. Verse 13, judgment without mercy will not be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We will all stand before Christ. Everyone who's named the name of Jesus, who is generally saved, who is born again, we will all stand before Jesus Christ and make an account. Not for our sin, because that's been dealt with. That's been covered. Jesus is standing in our place when it comes to that judgment. But this judgment is for the things that we've done in the body. So that we might receive what is due, whether good or evil. Whether the acts of kindness, those sins of omission where we saw a need and we just walked away. We need to be extending mercy to everyone just as, just as the Lord did to us, even when we didn't deserve it. Romans 5.8 While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, always keep in mind that as a Christian, judgment for our sin has already been paid for by Jesus Christ. And now we are not facing the judgment that we each so rightly deserve. But we are receiving God's mercy, God's grace, God giving to us what we don't deserve. And in light of that mercy and that grace we have received, we need to be extending that same mercy and that same grace to others. This is not a suggestion that our expressions of mercy somehow obligate God to show us mercy. It doesn't work that way. You see, our mercy simply indicates that we recognize the basis of our own acceptance before God. You see, we know the depth of our own need for mercy. We each know the depth of our own sinfulness. We each know the depth of the darkness that, that lies within each one of us. And the need for forgiveness, mercy, and grace. And we long for that. And God gives it to us. Let's give it to others as well. If we are not merciful to others, it reveals that we have failed to realize just how much we ourselves have been shown that mercy. An old movie you may be familiar with, it's called The Last Emperor. The young child anointed as the last emperor of China lives in a magical life of luxury with thousands of servants at his command. His brother asks him one day, he says, well, what happens when you do something wrong? And the boy emperor replies, well, when I do something wrong, someone else is punished. And so the boy emperor wants to show his brother what he means. And so he demonstrates what he means by picking up a, a jar a chalice of some sort, and drops it, and it busts, it breaks on the floor. And one of the servants is severely beaten because of what the emperor did. Jesus Christ reversed that ancient pattern. While the servant, that's you and me, 
have done so much wrong. The king is punished. We're not. Grace and mercy are free. Only because the giver himself has suffered. He suffered the cost of my sin and my rebellion. And when you consider the basis on which Jesus Christ has received you, has received me, the question is, how will you receive other people? How will you receive other people? How will you come alongside other people? Will you allow mercy to triumph over judgment? Grace to reign over prejudice and favoritism? You see, friends, that's what we are called to do and be as followers of Jesus Christ. And to be the kind of church that honors and respects those whom God honors, who God respects. It's his mercy. It's his grace that none of us deserve. So let's be thankful that he's called my name. He's called your name. And he has made us his own. Would you pray with me?